You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. And this is the story of Nora Wall. Please note, this episode contains discussion about allegations of child abuse, sexual assault, and rape against children. The Sisters of Mercy established a convent in Capaquin in Waterford in 1850, and in 1877, St. Michael's Industrial School was opened on its grounds. It operated as a boys' home, where they would stay until about 10 years of age. In 1970, girls were admitted, and the age you could stay to was eventually extended. When the original industrial school building was closed in 1977, the school was reformed into two group homes, Kushkame and Emmeru. The homes remained entirely under the Sisters of Mercy until 1985. At that point, the South Eastern Health Board took over, in theory, but the Sisters of Mercy still ran the group homes and looked after the management of it. The Sisters of Mercy at Capaquin were primarily engaged in providing education in a number of ways, some as regular teachers and a few working exclusively in St. Michael's. The home also had a number of lay staff, that is, staff who were not members of the Order of Nuns or any other religious organisation. Nora Wall, better known as Sister Dominic at that time, was manager at St. Michael's Centre and had been since 1978. She was the daughter of a farmer, born in 1948. She was raised on the farm in the picturesque Nyer Valley, near to Clonmel in County Waterford. After school at the age of 16, she joined the Sisters of Mercy and began teaching in a girls' secondary school. After that, she underwent training in childcare and social work. She was part of the first wave of a new generation of clergy people who would be professionally trained in the social work that they often found themselves called to do. Her first childcare course was completed in St. Joseph's in Kilkenny. By all accounts from her colleagues at the time, she thrived in her studies and did well there. She absorbed the knowledge and put it to use. By the time she was 30 years old, Sister Dominic took up the position as manager of St. Michael's Child Care Centre in Capaquin. It was only a few miles from the farmhouse where she grew up and was a significant position for one so young. She had the charge of 15 to 20 staff and up to 30 children. She also managed the budget and recruited and trained the staff in the former industrial school. Sister Dominic left the position in 1990, though, according to the Irish Independent, amid rumours that she had not comported herself as a nun should. Locally, people spoke about parties held at St. Michael's and that on occasion men were known to stay the night there. However, if those rumours were in fact true, it didn't stop Sister Dominic continuing in employment in childcare. Nora left her order completely in 1994 and went to work with the Belfast Action Team in an orphanage in Romania. There, she once again earned glowing reviews. When she returned home in 1996, she volunteered at a hostel for women and children. After that, she became a manager at a hostel for men run by the Vincent de Paul. But by the time she finished her 11-month contract there, Things had changed drastically for Nora Wall, though her employers were not yet aware of this. In 1996, an 18-year-old girl went to the Gardaí and alleged that Sister Dominic had molested her and had played a role in serious sexual assaults against her, which had occurred when she was about 10 years old, sometime between January 1987 and the end of December 1989, 
and in another incident that had happened when she was 12, in 1990, on the night of her birthday. This abuse had all occurred while she was in care at a group home in St. Michael's. She told police that the abuse had started sometime after 1984 when she entered the home. The young girl said that during her time there, she had developed a bedwetting problem and Sister Dominic wouldn't allow her to wear underwear and would make her share a bed in the nun's private room at the home. She also said that Sister Dominic had gotten into bed with her, touched her and kissed her. In addition, Sister Dominic had been present and participated in an horrific attack on the girl carried out by a man that the house manager had allowed to stay in the group home when she was 10. The teen described the attack in detail to the guardie, telling them how Sister Dominic had come into her room wearing a nightdress. The man, Paul McCabe, a former resident of St. Michael's, followed behind. The two adults approached her bed and she told police that Sister Dominic had held her by the ankles while Paul McCabe pulled her own nightgown over her head and then raped her. Though at the time, the girl said she hadn't understood that that was what was happening to her. According to her, Sister Dominic had sat at the end of her bed throughout the rape. The second attack had been nearly identical and had occurred on the night of her 12th birthday. Another girl who was resident at the home, who was five years older than the complainant, also spoke to the guardie and said that she'd seen the rapes the 18-year-old girl had described. On one occasion, she'd walked in on it as the attack was ongoing and had shouted, what's going on? But her interruptions hadn't stopped anything. The then 23-year-old told Gardie about how after the first ordeal, the younger girl was crying and bleeding profusely and she'd had to change the 10-year-old's sheets twice. The man that the two girls had named, Paul McCabe, who also went by the name Pablo, was about the same age as Sister Dominic and suffered from schizophrenia. He thought of Capaquin as his home as it was the only place he'd known kindness and stability. Sister Dominic had a habit of welcoming back those who'd been in care at St. Michael's or in the new group homes when they were established. Paul McCabe was the son of a single woman from County Carlow. He was left with relatives when she fled to England to escape the stigma of being a so-called fallen woman after having a child outside of wedlock. After that, Paul ended up in state care. He found himself in St. Michael's Capaquin from age three, and once he reached the age of 10, he was sent to the notorious Artane Industrial School in Dublin. After leaving there, he spent some time in South Africa before returning to Dublin, where he was effectively homeless. He had no family and few prospects and fell into an itinerant lifestyle. That said, Paul's mother did try to reach out to him through St. Michael's, but McCabe refused contact with his mother and would never reply to her letters. By the mid-90s, Paul McCabe lived in Oak House Hostel in Dublin city centre. While there, he drank and was known to get belligerent. He also suffered from Parkinson's and the medication that he was prescribed for his schizophrenia made the symptoms of the other disease worse which meant that his mental illness would often go untreated. On top of that, he'd suffered a stroke, but his situation was to get worse. In October of 1996, Nora Wall, formerly Sister Dominic, was arrested and brought to Fitzgibbon Street Garda Station in Dublin to answer allegations made by the 18-year-old girl. Specifically, the questioning related to the alleged incident of rape that occurred on her 12th birthday, the 8th of January 1990. Wall was not questioned regarding any other event at that time, not even the alleged rape that occurred two years earlier, when the young girl was 10. Nora denied everything that was put to her during her questioning and refused to sign the notes that had been taken during the interview, saying that they weren't accurate and didn't contain certain statements that Gardy had made to her, such as threats that she would go to jail and so on. Paul McCabe was also arrested in October of 1996 and brought to Dungarvan Garda Station in Waterford. No Garda notes were taken during his interviews, 
and rather than dictating a statement, Paul McCabe was asked a series of questions, and his answers to those questions were taken down. He was unmedicated at the time, and Paul had tried to tell the guards the full story of St. Augustine. But despite this, the questioning continued. After an hour, he was seen by a doctor, but this did not resolve the fact that he hadn't taken his medication for schizophrenia in a number of weeks. At first, the statements that Paul made to police were that he had confessed to Sister Dominic that he had molested the girl on the night of her 12th birthday. Paul told Gardy that he occasionally slept at the home in Capoquin and that through his stays there, he had gotten to know the young girl in question. He said she was friendly and pretty and stated to Gardy that she had told him she found him attractive. He went on to describe how, on the night of the girl's 12th birthday, he had gone to town and gotten drunk and when he got back to the home, he'd gone to her room and taken off his clothes. She did the same and they'd had sex. Paul said that the girl was clever and knew what she was doing and knew right from wrong. He described her to Gardie at the time as quote-unquote overdeveloped for her age. He told Gardie that when he told Sister Dominic what had happened and that he'd regretted it, he said she'd told him quote, only God knows what's really wrong, end quote. This story eventually developed into one which saw Sister Dominic being present in the room while the rape occurred, but Paul insisted to Gardie that he didn't remember holding the girl down. He was never questioned about the incident that had been alleged to have occurred two years before, when the girl in question was ten years old. Through the course of their investigations, however, it was confirmed by Gardy that Paul McCabe was actually in Dublin on the night of the 7th to 8th of January 1990, and again on the night of the 9th. He had stayed in a hostel in the city until half ten that morning. On the morning of the 10th of January 1990, Paul was sent to Mountjoy Prison. He wasn't in Capoquin when the rape on the girl's 12th birthday was to have occurred. When the teenager was told about what the Gardie had recorded in Paul McCabe's statements, she amended what she'd told the Gardie, saying that instead, the attack had occurred on the day that she had celebrated her birthday, which was sometime around the 8th of January, but could have been in the days before or after her actual date of birth. The girl's statement also recorded that she said she hadn't told anyone what had happened to her at the time of the rapes, However, the older female witness had told Gardy that she was present and had seen what had happened both times that Paul and Sister Dominic apparently raped the girl. This witness also put the events only a few months apart rather than two years. Formal charges were laid down against Nora Wall and Paul McCabe in May of 1997. They each faced two charges of rape and Nora Wall also had a charge of indecent assault to answer to. Both were released on bail to await trial that was slated to occur the following year, in 1998. Instead, though, Wall and McCabe's accuser left the country just as the case was about to be heard in court. She stayed in England for a year, saying that she was frightened and it was only after assurances by Gardie that they would be with her that she returned and the trial began. And so the case was heard before Mr. Justice Paul Carney at the beginning of June 1999. The state's case was that Wall and McCabe were guilty of two separate incidents of rape, one occurring when the girl was 10, the other when the girl was 12. They would call a witness who was resident at the care home at the same time as the victim, who had witnessed both attacks, and one of the defendants, McCabe, had made statements with certain admissions about the incidents. By the time of the trial, Nora's accuser was 21 years old. She took the stand and gave evidence, and alleged that Wall had bought presents and sweets and took the girl on holiday in order, she said, to make up for the abuses. She described the molestation and the incidents of rape and went on to tell the court of having been allowed to sleep in Sister Dominic's room 
and was even able to describe what the room had looked like. While on the stand, she told the court that she had delayed in reporting the rape and abuse because she had been so traumatized by the events, she had tried to block them from her memory. She approached Gardi when she did because she had started to have flashbacks. The court was told that the second defendant, Paul McCabe, had been raised in the same home and returned a number of times to visit. The girl described him as sister's friend and went on to say that she also saw the adults having sex. The allegations made by this girl were backed up by the other former resident of St. Michael's group home. She took to the witness box and described having twice walked in on Sister Dominic and Paul McCabe raping the younger girl. She also described how after each incident, she had helped the other child by staying up with her, comforting her and changing her sheets. Both of the defendants also gave evidence at the seven-day-long trial. Both denied that the incidents described by the girls in court had ever occurred. While giving evidence, Nora Wall denied having any sexual or inappropriate contact with the children in her care. She said occasionally the small children would be allowed to sleep with her after she gave them a bottle at nighttime, but that was all. Wall said that the girl accusing her was a known liar and that she had made similar allegations against others in the past. The former nun went on to allege that the 21-year-old had falsely accused her father of raping her before and said she was known for making up stories. Sometimes the girl had been caught even hurting other children in the care home. She was always making up stories and Wall said that whenever there was trouble in the facility, this girl was sure to be at the centre of it. Wall insisted that, quote, nothing was beyond her, end quote. While Nora Wall was noted for sitting quietly in court, seemingly at peace with what was going on around her, her co-defendant Paul McCabe was less settled. He twitched and fidgeted on the witness stand and had to be remanded in custody over lunch break while giving evidence because Mr Justice Carney thought it likely he'd drink too much to be able to speak in court if allowed out on his own. When he spoke before the court, McCabe vehemently denied the charges outright and said that they were, quote, absolute hearsay nonsense, end quote. McCabe also denied that the information read to the court in his Garda statements was true, saying he suffered with his mental health and he had been unmedicated when he first spoke to Gardi. And McCabe wasn't exactly clear-minded at the trial either. At one point during his questioning on the stand, he'd gotten the victim confused with another girl who was resident at the home at that time. The defence team pointed out that not only was McCabe's so-called confession questionable, with allegations that it had effectively been put together by Gardi for the man, he was also not in Capoquin on the victim's 12th birthday and therefore could not have raped her when she said. After the closing statements, Mr Justice Carney gave his summing up and directions to the jury, which included a strong warning about uncorroborated evidence. The jury of eight men and four women retired, and it took them just over four and a half hours to reach their verdict, which was one of a majority of ten to two. And so, on the 10th of June, 1999, Nora Wall was found guilty of one count of rape and the charge of indecent assault. Her co-accused Paul McCabe was found guilty of the same rape charge. Both were found not guilty of the second charge of rape relating to the second incident alleged to have occurred when the girl was 12 in 1990. Both were remanded on continuing bail with their date for sentencing set to take place on the 23rd of July, 1999 just over a month later. The girl wept as the verdict was announced. After the verdict, McCabe spoke to reporters outside the court. He said, quote, I am a homeless man. It's very hard for me to say where I was so long ago, end quote. Nora Wall would not speak to the press after the verdict and left the four courts by a back entrance. A relative said she was very upset 
and wanted to be left alone. Norwal became the first woman in the history of the state to be charged and then convicted of the crime of rape. The fact that she was convicted of doing so while a member of a holy order in charge of the care of children made the story all the more horrific and, as such, it drew intense attention from the press. Even in a decade that was marked by repeated scandals breaking involving various sorts of abuses by the church, this story stood out as particularly heinous. The public were outraged and disgusted and wanted to know how this could have happened, especially as these crimes dated only as far back as a decade. After the verdict, the Sisters of Mercy made a statement saying that they were devastated by the revolting crimes which resulted in the verdicts. They said that Ms. Wall had been removed from her position by the Sisters of Mercy, having never been employed directly by the Southeastern Health Board. The order had become aware of other allegations against the former house manager at Kappa Quinn in 1993, and at that point they investigated the matter, but the statement said that they were unable to establish any firm evidence of any sort of abuse. They'd passed on their findings to the Gardee and were satisfied at that time that the children who had been in the centre under Ms. Wall's care had not been at risk. After the trial, each institution that Nora had worked with were contacted by the press for comment. The Southeastern Health Board said that the reference that Wall had was one issued by an official of the Southeastern Health Board in a personal capacity. Having left religious life with ample experience and qualifications to carry out the work that she did, Nora Wall had gone to Foss as an unemployed person after leaving the Order of Nuns in 1994, and it was through them that she'd worked at the Romanian orphanage for six months as part of a North-South project, which was funded internationally, and where Nora Wall was one of 25 Foss workers who had participated in the programme. According to Foss, there were no complaints about Nora Wall in her time there. The Legion of Mary Women's Hospital that Wall next worked for said that the trial and Wall's convictions had nothing got to do with them. A representative from the St. Vincent de Paul said only that they were saddened and shocked at the trial and conviction and that Wall's work with their organisation had ended by mutual agreement at the end of her contract. The Sisters of Mercy would make no further comment. The press coverage of the case was sensationalistic and focused primarily on Nora Wall. Papers noted that Wall had had no problems taking the stand and saying that this girl was a liar and that she hadn't blanched at labelling the victim a disruptive child. Many of them noted that Wall had displayed no signs of remorse for her so-called evil crime and some even went on to allege that she had been involved in some sort of paedophile ring and had procured children for the purposes of abuse by other members of the clergy. In the midst of all this, the girl at the centre of the abuse scandal decided to speak to the press and gave an interview to the Star newspaper. In the article, she identified herself as 21-year-old Regina Walsh. Regina described her tormentor as ice-cold and evil to the bone, and described how Nora Wall had run St. Michael's home like a tyrant. According to Ms. Walsh, Wall had been foul-tempered and violent as a manager there. She said most of the children there were hit by Wall mainly with her fists, but she alleged that Wall had also used sticks, pots, pans, and a chain. Regina recalled that one girl had supposedly suffered a broken collarbone when Wall pushed her to the ground, and another boy was allegedly knocked unconscious after Wall banged his head against the ground repeatedly. Regina went on to describe her own abuse and said she would try to pretend she was somewhere else while it was happening, but she'd suffered badly after the trauma of it. She'd attempted suicide a number of times and ended up in an abusive relationship. She said her childhood had been taken away from her. To her, the abuse that she alleged to have suffered at Kappa Quinn set the stage for what was to come later in her life. Not only had she been in abusive relationships, but she had been raped once more 
near Leicester Square in London, she said. Regina went on to say that nothing could compensate her for what had happened, but that she did intend on seeking legal advice in order to bring a case against the Sisters of Mercy and the state. This interview, though seemingly routine tabloid fodder relating to a high-profile and controversial case, provided information that was shocking to both the defence teams and the prosecution. Something seemed off. By the time sentencing came round a month later, the defence lawyers were eager to have permission for appeals to be lodged and made a lengthy submission relating to that before sentencing proper would take place. They said that information had come to light in the intervening weeks, which indicated that the verdict reached by the jury might not be safe. This sentencing hearing was held in public, given that the injured party and the protected witness had both spoken to the press and given up their anonymity. Hugh Hartnett Senior Counsel submitted that the prosecution had failed to disclose potentially significant evidence including further accusations made by Ms Walsh that she was raped by a man in Leicester Square and that another man had come forward to the defence team and said he had been falsely accused by the other witness, Patricia Phelan, in a case that was eventually dropped by the DPP. In addition, the victim impact report had also referred to periods that Walsh had spent in St Declan's Mental Hospital in Waterford around the time she made the accusations which conflicted with what she had previously stated, indicating that either she had lied or that the prosecution had failed to disclose this to the defence teams. Hugh Hartnett Senior Counsel said that, at worst, there was a substantial potential miscarriage of justice and, at best, there was an innocent failure on the part of the state, but either way, it needed to be looked into. Dennis Von Buckley, on behalf of the state, opposed the application, saying he did not accept that there had not been full disclosure by the state in this case. The prosecution told the court that they hadn't been aware of the allegation of rape in England, and prosecuting Gardee said that they weren't aware of judicial proceedings involving the corroborative witness Ms. Phelan, and even so, those proceedings would not have been relevant to this case against Wall and McCabe. It did seem strange, however, that Gardy and Kilkenny and Waterford had not known of the common link between the cases that took place around the same time and in close quarters to one another. In any event, the defence's application was denied. Mr Justice Carney said that he had no jurisdiction to grant an application for a stay in the proceedings in order for the case to be heard in front of the Court of Appeal, which was due to sit the following week. He also refused to put off the hearing. Regina Walsh chose not to make any remarks before sentencing, but did ask a Garda superintendent to read a poem entitled Stolen Childhood. The court heard that Paul McCabe had 35 previous convictions for assault, criminal damage, indecent assault, indecent exposure, larceny, malicious damage, and assault on Gardee. He had been placed in care as a child and had spent time in Artane Industrial School. He spent six months in the army after he left there at the age of 16. McCabe had a history of drug and alcohol abuse and had been treated at St. Brendan's Psychiatric Hospital in Grange Gorman. Mr. Justice Carney refused leave to appeal and imposed a sentence of 12 years imprisonment on Paul McCabe and a life sentence for Nora Wall. Justice Carney said, quote, This was gang rape. The leader of the gang was the only person in the world who was charged with the protection of Regina Walsh. I don't think I need to say more than that. End quote. Wall was also sentenced to five years for indecent assault to run concurrently with her life sentence. Four days later, an urgent appeal had been prepared to put before the court. They had initially been slated to be heard on the Thursday by the Court of Appeal, but by Tuesday the defence teams put forward an application to have the convictions overturned. It was reported that morning, the 27th of July, that the DPP were likely, in a very unusual move, 
not to contest the application. Something had happened. Dennis von Buckley told the court of three judges that the main reason for their consent in the application was that a witness was called that the DPP had determined should not be called during the proceedings. The allegations of a further rape while in London and another issue which was not disclosed at the time of this hearing were also noted as having partially contributed to the decision. Von Buckley said that the prosecution had not been aware of these further issues until sentencing the previous Friday. After a brief adjournment to consider, the three-judge panel returned and quashed the convictions, releasing Wall and McCabe on modest bails on the condition that they attend at local Garda stations. They would return to court in November in order to set a date for a further hearing on whether the court would direct a retrial in the case, a suggestion strongly objected to by the defence. When that date came around, the state asked for more time to consider whether they wanted to pursue the charges. The DPP wanted to review the trial transcript and so a new date would have to be set in the new year. There had been speculation in the press that the state's case was too weak to bring again if they couldn't rely on the witness statements of Patricia Phelan. This request for more time was followed by a rash of criticism. Wall and McCabe had been waiting months for some indication of what their fate was to be and whether they would have to go through the process of a trial once more. It came out that the transcript of the trial had been completed on the 22nd of October and there was an understandable backlash by the public that the DPP had not yet reviewed it by the time they appeared in court on the matter once more. Too late did the office of the DPP make it known that they had not received its copy until the morning of the hearing. Either way, Wall and McCabe would have to wait for their next court appearance to find out what the DPP had decided in relation to their case. One legal source told the Irish Independent that, in relation to Patricia Phelan taking the stand, this had happened due to quote-unquote anomalies between the book of evidence and statements at a later stage. It was a case of pure human error that the witness had been called. As it turned out, the DPP himself, James Hamilton, prepared a report regarding the case to assess how the case had been handled by that office and what had gone wrong in its preparation for the Attorney General's office on the 1st of October which was released to the public on the 18th of November, 1999. This report outlined how the direction to prosecute Nora Wall had occurred on the 24th of April, 1997, after the Gardaí had sent a file to that office. At the time, it was directed also that the defending counsel should be given the statement made by Patricia Phelan and that they should be told that the prosecution did not intend on calling her as a witness. The Chief State Solicitor's Office forwarded the statements but neglected to pass on the information that Phelan was not to be called. The first draft of witnesses listed for the state was prepared on the 2nd of February 1998 and did not include Ms Phelan's name due to this same direction. After that, the DPP's office directed that all statements made in relation to the case including those not in the book of evidence, should be made available to the court and were therefore forwarded to the chief state solicitor's office. The CSSO then wrote to the council involved, noting that these documents had only been given to them. Some of the statements that were passed on were in fact new, ones that had not been in the Garda file, but amongst them were felons. The senior counsel for the prosecution thought that they were all new and forgot about the previous direction involving the calling of Ms. Phelan and the decision that Phelan was not a reliable witness. This assessment of Ms. Phelan's reliability related in part to her involvement in other cases where sexual assault had been alleged. The report identified a number of organisational deficits which had been responsible for the errors occurring in this case. 
According to the Irish Independent, Mr. Hamilton said, quote, Human error occurs inevitably in any system and any organization, end quote, and that as far as it was known, this was the only occasion in the history of that office that a witness was wrongly called. Within the report, the DPP recommended a number of improvements in the procedures for processing criminal trials aimed at avoiding a repeat. However, he also stated, quote, failures on the part of the chief state solicitor's office which contributed to this incident must be attributed in part to the shortfall in resources in that office and the over-heavy workloads, end quote. The report was the first of its kind in the DPP's 25-year history. With the report came the decision that the DPP would not be seeking a retrial in the case. After 32 appearances in court on the matter, the charges against both defendants were dropped by the DPP on the 22nd of November 1999 upon their return to court. A full hearing on the matter was nonetheless required by the judge who wanted the full facts and circumstances of the case presented to her. Regina Walsh had said on the stand that she recalled the assaults through flashbacks, something that the defence had no notice of. No evidence was presented in order to assess the reliability of flashbacks and recovered memories at the trial. It had not been known or disclosed that Patricia Phelan had also made allegations against three male relatives and another incident that was dropped by the DPP after judicial review. The case involved allegations made by Phelan and another woman against a local businessman in Kilkenny. Justice McCracken said, quote, While I have great sympathy for the two defendants, I have to say that I was not particularly impressed with their evidence, end quote. After judicial review, the CSSO returned to court and said that it would not be pursuing the case any further. One guard who had been involved in the investigation of that incident also took statements from Phelan in relation to the alleged assaults on Regina Walsh. The biggest issue, however, was of course that the DPP had directed that Phelan not be called to give evidence, but she had still ended up testifying. At the hearing, the DPP said that it fully and ungrudgingly accepted that Wall and McCabe were entitled to be presumed innocent of the charges that had been brought against them. After Dennis Von Buckley read a prepared statement on behalf of the DPP announcing the decision in court, Nora Wall found him in the crush of people afterwards and shook his hand, thanking him. This time, when she and her family left the court building, they went through the front doors. Nora's brother Jim made a brief statement to those gathered waiting outside. He said, quote, we are happy with the outcome. We came to court to prove our innocence and now we are on the way home, End quote. Nora Wall did speak to RTE Radio. She said that she held no bitterness against Regina Walsh, but said she had no idea what had motivated the lies against her. She had believed that she would be cleared of the accusations because she knew them to be false. However, in the aftermath of the trial, she was left with no prospects. She said that after her arrest, she, quote, could not understand what they were saying to me at first. When they said rape, I said I had never been raped, and it didn't make sense. Then they said it had happened in St. Michael's, in Cush Came, and it still did not make sense to me. And then they said Regina Walsh. I was still turning around in my head how this could be. And then they mentioned Paul. That didn't make sense to me at all. And then... When they told me what was supposed to have happened, I said, look, I could not think like that. Never mind, do a thing like that, end quote. There would be no apology from the state to either Nora Wall or Paul McCabe because they had been acquitted in the appeals process, despite the obvious problems that had led to their convictions. Paul McCabe had a seizure in November of 2002 and fell seriously ill. At that point, his mother Helen was contacted. She lived in Huddersfield and had to tell her husband about her son for the first time. Paul died just a few days before Christmas that year. The funeral was delayed in order that the elderly couple could travel. They'd been ill at the time. Helen attended the small funeral mass at Merchant's Key Church, along with her husband and about 20 other people. 
Paul McCabe was buried in a pauper's grave in Glasnevin Cemetery by the state in January of 2003. In February of 2004, lawyers for Nora Wall appeared before the Criminal Court of Appeal once more. They wanted the court to issue a certificate declaring that there had been a miscarriage of justice in her case. This would allow her to pursue a claim for damages. The DPP told the Criminal Court of Appeal that they would not be contesting the application and so all that was left was for the judges of the court to make their decision. December 1st, 2005 would be the date that the submission was heard and the certification was agreed upon. Nora Wall had been the victim of a miscarriage of justice. The submissions on behalf of Ms. Wall took four hours. The DPP told the court that new evidence had emerged since the initial trial, which, had it been known earlier in the investigation, meant that the prosecution would not have gone forward. Patricia Phelan was present in the Four Courts complex at the time of the hearing and was directed by the judges to be present during the hearing. They believed that she should hear what occurred there. And for the first time, the major issues with her involvement in the prosecution were laid out. Since the trial in June of 1999, Patricia Phelan had told a number of people that she had lied in her statements to the Gardee and on the witness stand in court. Patricia had rang Sister Mona Colleen during the trial, but couldn't recall what she had told her at that point. It was stated, however, that Phelan had told the nun over the phone, quote, it never happened, end quote. Phelan accepted that she had met Sister Mona at a later date in a state of distress and told the nun that she'd lied and that she'd made it all up. Sister Mona had then contacted Gardie to pass on what she'd been told. Patricia subsequently made another statement to Gardie outlining how she had first been told of Ms. Walsh's allegations in 1996 and that Regina had asked her to go to court with her. Patricia didn't recall whether Ms. Walsh had asked her to make a statement to the Gardie saying that she'd witnessed the alleged rape but agreed that she had done so either way. In her new statement made in 2001, after Sister Mona went to the police, She said she, quote, never actually saw it and, quote, made it sound as if I saw it, end quote. Rather, she had repeated the story that Walsh had told her. Phelan told the court that Sister Dominic had given her a, quote, terrible life, end quote, and that she'd wanted to get back at the nun for that. According to senior counsel John Rogers, the similarity of the evidence given by the two girls suggested that they had, quote, unquote, connived with one another to establish the story they would tell. It was also described for the court how directions relating to the calling of Patricia Phelan had not been adhered to by counsel, and that despite the fact that there were solicitors for the CSSO present throughout the trial, they did not draw to counsel's attention that there had been directions not to call Patricia. Wall and McCabe were convicted in relation only to the incident for which Patricia gave the corroborating evidence. The jury had not convicted on the other count of rape, for which there was a statement made by McCabe purporting to confess to the act. It would seem that the eight men and four women present in the criminal court had not believed McCabe's account to the Gardee and had made their decision on the basis of Patricia Phelan's corroborating evidence. The judges of the Criminal Court of Appeal noted in their judgment that, quote, Needless to remark, the fact that a corroborative witness is shown to be unreliable would not of itself amount to a miscarriage of justice. However, the evidence went a great deal further in the present case to the point where it is now established that Patricia Phelan on the 10th of January 1997 made a statement to the Garda Shiakana which was untrue and at the trial gave entirely fabricated evidence in circumstances which give rise to a compelling inference of collusion between her and the complainant, resulting in the fabrication of evidence, which in the judgment of this court would render it unsafe to leave any of the evidence of either girl to a jury. End quote. Nora Wall sat through the proceedings only a few feet away from Patricia, and although Phelan looked at the older woman often, Nora never looked at her. 
Wall became visibly distressed when some of the original evidence from Phelan's statement was read to the court during the hearing. However, after the proceedings, Ms. Wall approached Patricia with her hand outstretched. Phelan began to cry loudly and threw her arms around the older woman before leaving court. In November of 2009, Nora Wall went again to court seeking judicial review after it appeared that the state, through the Minister for Justice, was refusing to make a decision on her claim for compensation. By December of 2013, the Irish Independent reported that the government was in active negotiations with Wall for compensation for the miscarriage of justice. She was by that point seeking orders which would force the state to provide her with documents relating to her prosecution. It was reported by the Irish Independent that around that time, an offer of €75,000 was rejected by Ms Wall and her legal team, calling the sum of money inadequate. In March of 2014, the court ordered that any documentation that the DPP's office had relating to Patricia Phelan, her statements and whether or not she might be called as a witness in the trial, were to be handed over to Nora Wall's legal team. These documents would help them in their arguments that the state's lawyers knew or ought to have known that Patricia Phelan had lied to Gardie in her statements and that she was an unreliable witness. The matter was finally settled in the High Court in May of 2016, with the Irish Independent reporting that the sum was thought to be in the region of half a million euros. Blame for this miscarriage of justice from religious and politically conservative quarters in Ireland was placed on the RTE documentary States of Fear, which was broadcast around the time of the trial, and other publications coming out with stories of clerical abuse, which they stated had primed the Irish public for the case against Nora Wall, and made it easy to believe such a thing would happen. This misses the point. The actual abuses seen in Ireland's educational and social services, are what primed people to this belief. The stories people had heard, and in many cases, the behaviours they had seen, made them believe it. Generations of Irish people grew up in an environment where corporal punishment in school was to be expected, and where children had to be mindful of their own safety in schools. This was the normal course of things and the situation was far worse in industrial schools and homes, which, though often funded by the state, were run by religious orders and the church. A miscarriage of justice certainly occurred in this case. In fact, it's one that should never have been charged. Mistakes were made during the initial investigation of the allegations, which were followed by errors made in an understaffed and underfunded chief state solicitor's office. These were corrected swiftly at the appeal court level, and Nora Wall and Paul McCabe found that their life sentences amounted to only four days in jail. Brida O'Brien says in her paper Miscarriage of Justice that Nora Wall had a blameless record of lifelong service to children, but further evidence gathered by interview for the preparation of the Ryan Report does not bear this through. The Ryan Report, which was published in 2009, was the result of an inquiry set up by government to look into various institutions, such as schools and homes, and the incidents of child abuse that had occurred there. One of the institutions studied was St. Michael's Industrial School and its successors the Kush Kame and Amaru Group Homes, run by the Sisters of Mercy. It was an institution that had been dogged by problems. In the 40s and 50s, children were chronically underfed and management were less than responsive. This continued into the 60s. Under Sister Dominic's leadership, poor management continued. There were no protocols in place to track punishments, including physical punishments. And the report describes that Sister Dominic had a known problem with alcohol, at least two inappropriate intimate relationships with other nuns in the order who were supposed to be providing oversight to her, and that she allowed other adults to stay in the group home directly under her management. Despite efforts of the Sisters of Mercy to improve the situation, complaints by lay members of staff went unresolved for a number of years, until Sister Dominic was forced to give up her position and a new manager, a layperson, was appointed. Even after that, Sister Dominic interfered with the daily running of the group homes, 
which eventually led to her leaving the Holy Order in 1994 and taking up life as a layperson once more. From reading the Ryan Report, it would seem that Nora Wall believes that, since she was happy and some of the children were happy, then she did a good job. Those who criticised her, other members of her order, lay staff, inspectors who were in and out of the group homes over the decade or so that she was in charge, all of their criticisms stem from one particular member of lay staff and were made from spite. In her evidence, delivered to the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, Nora Wall, who was identified throughout by an alias, spoke of her disbelief about the other evidence that had been given regarding her time in charge at Capaquin. She said, quote, I don't know what went wrong, I just don't know, because we had great times and good times and happy times. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend that really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Sandra O'Donoghue, Jessica Bidmead, Amy Galloway, True Crime Nana, Thomas David Wooten, Lucretia Borgia, Linda, Dara Lynch, Anna Cohn, and Jenny McGovern. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so, so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. Our theme music is Quinn's song, The Dance Begins, by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Helen attended the small funeral mass at Merchant's Kate, Merchant's Kate, Merchant's Kate.